Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Welcome to episode 12 of series 4 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. We're actually coming to the end of the podcast series, but we should have one or two more over the next couple of weeks and be wrapping it up then. A special mention to Sport Endorse, who are on board as sponsors for this series. They're an online sports sponsorship platform that connects athletes with businesses all around the world. The Irish-owned online marketplace has over 4,000 athletes to date. For more information, be sure to check out Sport Endorse website. Also, a big shout out to Shire Barn Cafe and Clarny, who are also supporting the podcast for this series. Our guest this week is Ulster rugby star Ian Madigan. The Dublin native has 30 Irish caps, two Six Nation titles, and played a pivotal role in Ireland's 2015 World Cup campaign. Ian has two Champion Cups with Leinster and moved to Bordeaux and Bristol where he achieved further success. Madigan is an advisor to data privacy compliance company Dataships. Ian and his wife Anna founded Feel Free CBD in 2020 which is a natural solution that will empower everyday people to achieve their personal goals. There is no doubt we have a huge amount to cover with Ian so let's bring him on. Hi Ian, thanks for taking time out coming on Inside View podcast. How are you keeping? Very good, yeah. Thanks a minute for having me on. It's been uh, long overdue. I know we've spoken about it for the last year, so it's great to finally get on. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Thanks for uh, for for agreeing to come on because I know you're busy, a lot going on at the moment with uh, with rugby and feel free as well, which we'll delve into soon. Let's bring it back to the start. I'd like to create a picture for my uh, listeners about uh, about the guest. So, what was it like growing up? You're a, you're a Dublin man. Yeah, from Dublin. Um, grew up in Fox Rock. I was very lucky. Um, my parents, you know, left me wanting for nothing. Uh, Maria and Michael, and um, you know, sport was a massive part of, of of what I did growing up. Whether it was tennis up in Carrick Mines, um, golf up in um, Kiltearn with my dad, or or playing Gaelic football with Chemical Croaks, and then doing the minis then in in Belvedere. So we're um, a very kind of sporting and competitive family. So it was. Uh, it was all I kind of knew growing up, and um, I was very lucky that I was given opportunities to, to 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 play all those sports and to be supported by my parents in doing them. Whether it was getting new boots regularly or or getting lifts, uh, you know, all over um, Dublin, they were brilliant for us. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. What uh, what what values do you think your parents instilled in you? I suppose that you you can kind of really see as you you've gotten older. Yeah, I, there's a few like like consistent. Hard work. It would be, you know, something that both my parents would have done. Like they both worked when we were growing up, um, and we 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 had au pairs living, au pairs looking after us as well. So my mom was a, a a physio, and and you know that's obviously a hard graft in in itself. You know, hands on and and trying to figure out the the issues that that her patients are going through. And then my dad worked um worked in the bank um. Uh, and you know, put in some seriously long hours, um, and <clears throat> you, you you could see kind of the challenges that they had, and 
you know how how they manage that and you know how my my dad would would keep himself in good physical shape was was something that I always really admired and and, and something that that I've always tried to do myself. Brilliant! That's amazing. How you know from uh, from such young age those values that they were instilling you that you can you can see now today you know especially with fitness and and um you know your your mother been a physio as well uh, it's it's amazing how both their interests actually combined into to what your profession is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, my mum being a physio gave me a good understanding of my body from, from an early stage. And I was lucky enough to 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 get partnered up with Mary Elaine Grant when I think I was maybe 11 or 12. And we did all these different tests on our hamstrings and quads and low back and abs. And she picked up all these deficiencies. And, you know, I think back to that and, you know, it was way ahead of its time. And it was a big reason why I've been so lucky with my injury profile throughout my career. Was there any time that you questioned rugby where you committed 100% to rugby? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, you know, it's obviously, it's a tough game and it's a team game. Um, and, you know, I, I, I had great success in, in Blackrock College, you know, winning a junior cup, um, playing in the senior cup team three years in a row. Um, but in my final year playing with, you know, my best friends, I missed a crucial kick to to knock us out of the of the cup competition which at the time is 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 your whole world so you know off the back of that i did question you know is is rugby definitely for me do i want to continue with this am i suited to the pressure um but i look back on that moment and probably you know think it was the best thing that that could have happened to me you know it was a big setback at the time and i think it's setbacks in life that that kind of make you more durable and and you know professional sport is, is very testing you know you're challenged every day by the players around you by the coaches in the environment and if you don't have a thick thick skin and and big belief uh, in yourself you're not going to survive you had an incredible eight years at linster um looking back now how would you sum up that time yeah like it was just a dream come true you know you're i supported Leinster as a, as a kid growing up used to go to all the games in donnybrook and um yeah i was just always kind of fascinated by it and you know, you idols like, you know, Brian O'Driscoll, Gordon Darcy, that that Shane Horgan that you would have watched from, you know, your your early teens playing all the way through. And then before you know it, as a, as an 18 year old, you're you're sharing a change room with them, lifting weights, training with them and, and ultimately playing games like there was there was times when you kind of had to pinch yourself and think, you know, am I dreaming here or is this actually real? You're extremely successful, you know, at that time at Leinster and they, they still are in fairness. Um, but looking back and having moved around to, to different clubs, what do you think allowed Leinster to continue that conveyor belt of, of success? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, the, the, the dynamics of the school system in, in, in Leinster and in Dublin in particular um, you know, the, the, the schools in their own rights are, are like mini academies. So, you know, you've got a consistent feed of, of quality young players coming through into the system every year, which, you know, makes it really competitive. Like having that pool of players that, for example, the Scottish teams don't have, the Welsh teams don't have, the, you know, the same high quality school system that we have, have in Ireland. Um, and then I suppose the other thing internally within Leinster, you know, the club isn't reliant on any one particular person. Like obviously the team was, was built around Brian O'Driscoll for a long time. And, and everyone thought, you know, when he left, you know, the place was going to crumble, but 
there's it, it's very much a player led uh, club and 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 the players drive the standards in, in the club so you know if one person moves on or a couple of people move on the greater group is always going to be able to carry that extra weight um like how do you think they can maintain those high standards you know especially when success was was coming very quickly during the time you were there you know it's easy for for these levels to drop although you know with Dublin they were successful for for years in, in the football side of things but how do you think they've maintained and continue to maintain those winning standards even when they win from year to year I know it's kind of similar what I asked but it's, it's kind of different in a way yeah no it is different and I think what what Leinster focus on is themselves and the controllables within the club and you know pushing themselves in the gym or fitness you know and and they're always thinking of their own strategy and their own game plans. They're leaders in that. They're not copycats. And that's why they, they, you know, they can keep adapting their game to stay at the forefront of, you know, European rugby. And who do you think, you know, instill that? Because I suppose it's easy and I've never experienced it, but from, from the outside looking in, you know, some players might get complacent when success is coming quickly. How do they ensure that that complacency doesn't set in? Yeah, like I think success can, you know, have the potential of making it complacent, but it can also have the potential of just making you far hungrier to to win and win more, you know, and, and you know, players are, are, are motivated by the, the legacy they want to leave behind the club. You look at someone like Rob Carney and, you know, how coveted he was, you know, he he wanted to to finish his career with as many, you know, league league. Uh, trophies, European trophies, Six Nations championships as possible. So, you know, you, you can't think, oh, look, you know, can you be complacent and be happy with what you've done? Or do you want to, you know, create your legacy and the team's legacy? And that's that's what drives the, the, the club on. I've listened to a few of the interviews you've done. I've been following your career for, for years. Um, and you mentioned in an interview previously that a passed you through um in a game i think it was might have been the european cup uh was intercepted and ultimately resulted in, in losing the game or you, you weren't able to push on but it took you until you had a conversation with your brother to realize you know what was the reason behind that do you want to kind of delve into into what that was and why you took that moment yeah I think you know when when you're you're playing in professional sport, you know there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of voices. So like you've got obviously the supporters who, you know, are are, are great in 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 driving the team on and and you know are entitled to their their own opinions. You've got the, you know the media, whether it's the the written press or the t- or on TV, and then you've got you know internally you've got your own players who who will give you feedback, and then the coaching staff. But then outside of that, it's also really important to have you know so you know two or three people who you can rely on that are going to tell you straight up, look, what you're doing is really good, or I think you need to work on this, or I think your focus on this could be, could be greater. And um, my brother has been great throughout my career in, in challenging me in that, in that sense. And um, it was off the back of a conversation with him that he was like, look, this has happened. Why did it happen? What could you have done to prevent it happening? Um, what was your process around it? You know, he's been very successful in business and 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 he was trying to transfer some of the things that he'd learned in business to me as a professional player. Um, and that did change my mindset and in, in kind of how I planned my training weeks and gave me a more kind of laser focus. 
what was it like, you know, being in that setup with Leinster when Sexton was was and still is probably the best best player in his position in the world? Um, you know, was it? I'm just trying to delve into the inner dialogue that you know must have been going on in in your head at the time. Was it difficult? And had you a lot of self doubt? Can you just kind of bring us into into that time? Yeah, no, I didn't have self doubt. Like I like. I, I never tried to be Johnny, you know, I, I was always, I always had my own kind of style of play. Um, and for me, it, it was about focusing on the controllables that I could look after, you know, can I get faster? Can I get stronger? Can I improve my pass? Can I improve my kicking game? Can I improve my game management? I'm working closely with the players and the coaches around that. Um, you know, my goal was always to be number one. It was never to be the best backup to Johnny that I could be. And I think if, as a professional athlete, like if you're not, aiming to be number one and be great, then you can go and find my career that, you know, I definitely challenged Johnny in different ways. And 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 I'd like to think I drove him on to be, you know, a better player as well. Do you think that the management learned, you know, how to deal with similar situations going forward from that time when you were, were with Linster and, and with, with Johnny? Yeah, I think... You can see now, like with the Six Nations, Ross has has, has got more opportunities, um, which is really important. Like you know, coming on against Australia, kicking the winner. He, you know, I thought he he played well against Italy in the Six Nations. Came on again at the weekend and 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 closed the game out. Um, you know, those those experiences are are really crucial leading into a World Cup. Where and I think they probably learned from me that maybe you know, they should have potentially given me more starts in the lead up to the World Cup. You know, you look back to the Argentina tour games that we probably could have um, won regardless of who was playing out half. But for me to have got 60 or 80 minutes there could have really stood to me. Um, the issue with that was, though, you know, I was competing with Paddy Jackson at the time and, and and Paddy was playing really well. So I don't think they'd made up their mind on on who who was the potential guy to really t- challenge Johnny. And, and it was it was tough to, to to manage game time between us. And then ultimately a coach is under massive pressure to win the game that's right in front of them, you know? So it, it's easy to say, oh, and ahead for a World Cup. But ultimately, you know, Andy Farrell is going to be judged on performance in the Six Nations. And, and the best way to prepare for a World Cup is to going through nations, which we've done really well. I read an article before that you said when you were with Linster, um, Joe Schmidt used to keep you accountable, um, but you guys had a strong relationship. Do you think that accountability was something you needed at that stage or, you know, looking back now? Yeah, I think it's something that players actually crave. You know, we, we want feedback. Um, there's nothing worse when you're not getting picked and a coach isn't telling you why and you don't know what you have to work on. You know, there might be conversations going on in the background with the other coaches about why you're not getting picked. But if they're not getting relayed to you as a player, how are you to how are you to know what you need to go and work on? Um, and Joe was brilliant at that. You know, he'd 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 analyze your game, and he he was great at, at picking out what you did well, um, and you know, filling you with confidence that way. But he'd always leave you with a couple of work ons. Um, and and make it clear to you what you know what his expectations were of you, um, and it was that relationship with Joe. I, you know, I always felt the, the door in his office was open, and if I had an idea from a strategy point of view, I could go in and have an open conversation with him, 
And he'd have no hesitation in just saying, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Or, yeah, I, I quite like that. Let's have a look at it and, and see if it's going to work. You know, you've, you've, you've heard so many players reference it since about the fear aspect he used to instill into, into the team, um, that people used to be afraid to, to do something wrong. But he still seemed to have gotten results. Um, obviously, you know, towards the end, it might have went a bit different, but he did seem to get results. Why, why do you think that fear actually worked in his favour for a number of years? Yeah, like, you know, I've I've the, the ultimate respect for Joe and, you know, he's he's without doubt the best coach that I've had. Um, when people say, you know, uh, you know, they were in fear of him or, or, or of making mistakes and his reviews were were, were very clinical and, and brutal at times. But, um, you know, for me personally, I felt like I played with Joe on my shoulder. You know, he made it so clear to me in the lead up to a game what he wanted in certain situations and certain positions of the pitch that, you know, I, I, I knew um, I knew what I had to do to keep him happy. But I also knew as well that I had the freedom to do what I wanted. He'd regularly say to me, trust my instincts. My instincts are good. Trust them. So I never felt like I was being weighed down by, you know, the potential um, dusting down that he could give me after a game if I underperformed. Because um, ultimately, I think he had the belief in me that that I was trying to stick to the game plan as best as possible. But at times, things change on a pitch. You see something differently. Um, and the big thing with Joe was really execution. So you could see that maybe a crossfield kick is on and you go and you do it and you, you don't put it where you're supposed to. There, The winger intercepts it. They go the length of the pitch and score. Joe would go through the process of, you know, what did you see? Why did you do it? And ultimately it was your execution that failed and let you down. So why don't you just go off and work on your crossfield kicking to make it more accurate? but I'm happy with your process. Whereas if you said to him, oh, I just felt like doing a crossfield kick and it didn't work out, you know, he, he'd have some pretty strong words for you then. Did you ever feel in actual, actual fear, you know, when you did maybe do something wrong? Did, did that fear ever take over you or was, was it something that didn't really affect you? You knew you were doing your, your utmost yeah, like I always had big self-belief and, you know, I worked closely with Andy McNulty, the sports psychologist, and and he had a big focus on me and focusing on, you know, not trying not trying to focus on the past, but focusing on the future and, you know, having a kind of next ball or next action focus. Um, and, you know, regardless of, of how poorly the first 10 or 15 or 20 minutes of a game have gone, I'd still have the mindset of, right, my next action is going to be a positive one, whether it's a simple pass, hitting a rook, executing a kick. Um, and that really helped me. And it, it made me kind of step away from reviewing a game during a game. Um, you know, he was like, look, play each moment in the match individually. And then, look, you can sit back and review it afterwards. You made a bold decision in 2000. And 16, I think the year right to, to step away from Leinster. Looking back, no, do you regret decision moving moving abroad? No, look, I don't. I don't regret any decisions I've I've made in in my career. Um, I think the the key thing to, to that I did was I spoke to the people who I trust and weighed up the different options and um, ultimately made the decision at the time that that I felt was the right one and. 
you know, you can only lead one life and 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 I'm, I've been content with the the decisions I've made, but, you know, whether it was going to France or to, to England and, and now back to the island of Ireland. Um, but um, yeah, look, it was a big decision for me at the time. And it was the, the big driver was really that, you know, Johnny was coming back, having been in France and um, I, I would crave being kind of, I suppose the main man driving the team forward each week. And I felt um, that with Johnny coming back, he was going to be the one doing, you know, the main man doing that. Um, things had also changed as well. And, you know, before Johnny had left, I could still find my way in, into the 15 or the 23, whether it was playing in the center or at fullback. But at that stage, you know, Gary Ringrose had broken through, Robbie Henshaw had been signed. There was less kind of wriggle room to to work your way in into the back line you know if, if if everyone's fit I was falling back into the 23 having had you know two or three seasons of of starting you know most games when you're fit so it was it was I suppose if you're if you're not moving forward in professional sports you know you can't stand still you get passed out what was it like you know being inside your comfort zone is great you know you were you're you're doing extremely well at Leinster, um, home club, living in. Obviously, you 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 grew up in Fox Rock. Was it like literally stepping out of your comfort zone, going to a different country, new teammates, new language, a new culture? You know, it must have been must have been quite daunting and and uh, difficult. Yeah, it was great for me. Like you know, as you said, there you're living at home. All your friends are there. You know everything's done for you everything's poured on for you in Leinster it's a really well organised and well run club um, you know you move away and 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 suddenly you have to you know you have to learn a new, new language you're meeting 50 new people you're dealing with new strength and conditioning coaches a new schedule different diet in the club um, and it was challenging but you know what it made me do was I suppose think for myself a bit more become a bit more independent and ultimately it really matured me as a person. You know, if, if, if I think of how I was when I was 25 versus 28, I'd matured a lot and, you know, stuff that used to frustrate me, stopped frustrating me and stuff that I knew mattered. I became much clearer in my head and, and, and that ultimately gave me more happiness. Did you feel at the time when you, you moved away, especially with the, regulation or that the RFU have in place but did you feel that you're closing the door in Ireland then? No I didn't I, I never felt like if I never felt that by moving away that I couldn't get picked by Ireland Um, I you know I stayed in contact with Joe you know during my time in, in France and um, I, I felt that if I was playing well enough he'd, he'd still pick me Um, looking back on it I, I don't think I strung enough strung together enough um, good performances to to justify getting picked. I think if you, if you're a player that's playing abroad, you need to be probably you know 10, 15 percent better than the competition that it, that is back in Ireland to for them to justify them picking you. Um, you know, picking an, a player from from abroad, um, or he's playing abroad rather. Um, so that that would I, I definitely didn't feel like I was closing the door on on um, but I knew that. For me to still get picked, I was going to have to play really, really well. How many times do you receive that that famous meme after the the World Cup and against the game against France in two thousand and fifteen? 
you know that game was really exciting and and that meme that clip is uh, it always gets shared around every friday evening how do you how do you <laughs> how do you feel about that it was did it annoy, annoy you at the start or, or what was it um no not really to be honest like it's you know it's humorous you know and you know you get the meme of all oh, your 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 mate heading out the door of a nightclub with with someone and, and you're just delighted for him you know and you're kind of you're laughing your head off at it really i suppose um but look they, that, that, that that's kind of just me as a person you know i'm very passionate um leading into that world cup did being a lot of kind of doubt around you know myself and paddy and and would we be able to to back up johnny and um <clears throat> you know i'd been through you know a fair bit with my, with my own parents um and seeing them in, in in the crowd afterwards it's kind of unusual in 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 those international um games especially at the world cup you know you actually don't really get to see your friends and family so it was they, they said look we'll bring a massive kind of orange flag and you know if you see us great if you don't you don't so i was looking around for them afterwards and then when i looked up and saw them you know the, the kind of i think it was the emotion of seeing them and probably the relief of i've actually done an okay job here and and all the doubt all the doubters have been proven wrong and you know, that accumulated in me probably just getting a bit emotional. But I think, you know, people understand with me, I'm, you know, I'm generally a, a very honest person. What you see is what you get. Um, and yeah, look, that that was me. And I don't mind seeing those odd memes. It gives me a laugh. And <laughs> um, from, from, you know, from following your career, as, as I said earlier on, like definitely, you know, I'd, I'd have to say like your, your, um, your emotional intelligence is, is phenomenal. Like, and that's something I want to touch on later on. But, the passion and your awareness and it's probably accumulation of all that especially like you said in in that game um i just on that point before we move away from it what like what would you say to the media slash support slash supporters now you know in the lead up to the world cup um we're number one in the world you know there might be questions around you know who be what what will happen if sexton is injured what's your what's your thoughts around the whole thing yeah well look the media have got to do their job you know that's you know if if, if they're putting out vanilla all the time like you know it's not going to get the the interaction that you know ultimately the, the journalists get judged on so they've 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 got to make narratives whether it's who's johnny's backup who are they going to go with in the center um you know who's who's good enough to cover if Ty furlong gets injured you know all these kind of things that that's that's their job and it's to debate these kind of things they have to do it you know and and even i suppose the the narrative of how the draw is set up like it looks like you know it's completely one-sided draw you'd be mad not to think that england and australia won't just cruise through to the semi-final two sides that in my opinion probably aren't in the top five in the world at the moment yet one of them's going to make the final so you have to make stories about that as regards pressure on 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 and putting pressure on the team, you know we're going to be going into it most likely off the back of a grand slam and having um you know having beaten New Zealand over there, expectation is going to be really high. Traditionally, Irish teams in all sports when the expectation is high, we we generally underperform, unfortunately. But look, I think this team is different. You know, there's a different belief there, and um I think they're going to be able to manage that and. I think as well, it's 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 one thing, you know, how noisy the media can be, but what goes on internally within the camp, 
is is all that really matters and and that that's going to be kept really tight and and they're going to have their own values and their their own thoughts and their own clear game plan that they're going to stick to you know especially in the the era of social media like it's probably even more challenging for for the team for we say Andy Farrell and Co to ensure that everyone's mind is in check but maybe it's just something they've been working at for years like how did you find during the world cup with social media did you find that affecting you at all or did you just completely stay off it um yeah i think with social media or just even you know print media or you know the different podcasts are on i think when things are going well, if if you know you can take confidence from it, if you want to if you want to absorb it, you know it's going to ultimately it's going to pump your tires and fill you with confidence. Um, but that's a dangerous route to go down because you know the way professional sport is, things will turn. You will lose form at some stage in your career, and if you're someone who's reading all the positive stuff, you're going to find it very difficult to pull pull yourself away from reading the negative stuff. Um, and you know I've I've played with players who've you know, after games being on the blogs of supporter blogs, you know, and, and some of the stuff that's being said about players is is pretty nasty and would have, you know, a detrimental effect on, on, on their mental health. So my, my view has, has generally been to, to avoid a lot of it. Um, I obviously, you know, I love the game of rugby. I love watching it. And there's certain journalists who I really enjoy reading for their, you know, their point of view, um, but at the same time, if it's about me personally, I try and avoid it. Looking back, how you summarize your time under Joe Smith and Pat Lamb? Because you're you're obviously under Pat Lamb in um in Bristol, and obviously he was very successful with with Connacht. How are they like? How would you describe them as coaches? Do they have both different qualities or similar? Yeah, like I've obviously spoken a fair bit about Joe already. Like mm-hmm. I think it's well known, you know, how highly I think of him. They're 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 very different in, in many ways and very similar in many ways. Um Pat Pat's a fantastic coach. You know, he's he's his attention to detail will be similar to Joe. You know, his his reviews of, of training and, and games are incredibly thorough. His ability to improve the I suppose rugby intelligence of an entire squad was 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 something I was astounded at. Um, you know, it, when I arrived at Bristol, it, I I knew that compared to you know the Irish teams I'd played in, that the the rugby IQ wasn't as high. And Pat, in a short space of time, got that up to a you know a really good level very quickly. Um, he's also he's an innovator. Pat's willing to try stuff. You know, he's not a copycat. And I think a lot of the successful coaches. And all the successful coaches are the ones who are willing to try, you know, different setups with the forwards, different setups with the backs, whether it's one, three, three, one, you know, one, four, two, one, or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, putting like what Pens did with Munster, putting the back row out on the edge, or hookers on the edge, or you know, second rows on the edge, trying to get the key ball player on on the ball in the pitch. Um, and and Pat was someone who was willing to do that. Now, some of the stuff that he tried what didn't work and was no good. And obviously you'd been that and you'd move on. But some of the stuff that he tried would work. And he'd be the first coach and suddenly you could go on again on a you know a run of games where you could win four or five in a row and a team are going, the teams that you're playing against don't know what's coming at them. They haven't seen it before. They don't know how to prepare for it. And then you can then start manipulating and adapting off the back of that. And, you know, Pat was really, really good at that. 
I'd like to just get insight into, you know, what is into the, the life and times of a kicker. You know, I just find the the, the I just find it a very important and interesting position, um, especially from the psychological aspect of it. What's it like? You know, obviously, you you've, it's it's probably been in the reps for the kicking, etc. But in regards to the mindset training, what's that like? Yeah, the, the the mindset training is is nearly important as as the repetition. Um, I think you know most kickers will will figure out a technique that works for them. It's being able to, I suppose, replicate that under maximum maximum pressure is the real challenge. Um, and I think you know you you can go at it two ways. You can be too emotional about it and, and be caring and, and thinking, you know, there's 80,000 people in the stadium here. Um, you know, I've got to do this for the, the other 14 players on the pitch for me, the coaches that have put, you know, their blood, sweat and tears into the preparation, you know, and and if you're thinking that way, you're going to completely tighten up and you're not going to have any freedom in your kicking at all. Um, now there's the flip side of that, where you can go and try and completely relax yourself and say, I actually don't care if I miss this. But no one else needs to know that, that you're actually saying that to yourself. But you might say that for a short period of time if you're so suffering with nerves. You could say to yourself internally, I actually don't care if this misses. But then off the back of that, it's what are you focusing on? You're focusing on your key cues. So it could be keep your head down, long follow through, keep my toe pointed down. And generally for kickers, they're going to have maybe five or six different cues that they rely on. And when you're in the zone, you want to be focusing on one or two of them and then thinking to yourself, full commitment. I'm going to commit to this kick fully. And if you do that, at least you can look at yourself afterwards, whether it's, you know, after a game and you've had a bad day off the tee or a good day off the tee. And you look at yourself and you go, yeah, well, I fully committed to every kick. You know, I, I followed my my key cues. They didn't work, so be it. I'll go back to the train. I'll check the footage, see what I'm doing wrong, keep learning. Um, but at the same time, the kicks go over. It's the best feeling in the, in the world because it's something that's repetitive. You know, it's something that's repeatable, and you've landed on it. And that's when the penny dropped for me, kind of midway through my career, when I realized, right, this is the shot that I can hit, like a golfer hitting a draw. I knew how to hit a draw, and I could repeat it every time. And that's when my stats went from kind of being you know, high 60s, low 70s to suddenly being a high 80s, 90s kicker. And whether it was, you know, a kick to win the match when you're two points down or you're 40 points up, it made no difference to me. And how do you ensure that, you know, if if um a kick doesn't go over that, you know, a human naturally, we we've negative self-talk, but how do you ensure that you don't go into that default negative self-talk space yeah that was a big thing i worked worked, worked with 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 enda and and ironically the the, the best book I, I i read um that helped me with my goal kicking was um hank haney who was previously tiger woods's coach it was called the big miss and and tiger wanted to basically set up his swing to to <clears throat> block off one side of the of the rough so you've obviously got rough either side and then you've got the fairway down the, the middle the fairway being the, the posts and the ball going over either side of the rough being trouble 
So I wanted I I I read this book in detail and and <clears throat> said to myself, well, if I can block off missing one side of the post, I go from let's say thirty three percent chance of it going right, thirty three percent chance of it going down the middle, thirty three percent chance of it going left. I'm now changing it to 50-50. It's either going to go over or it's going to go left. So I figured out that if I set up my technique in a certain way that I could never miss right. And once I did that, and if I miss left, I knew exactly why. And I was able to correct that in a game because there's nothing worse as a goal kicker in a, in a match to miss a kick and not know why. And then you're stepping up to the next kick and you're going, well, what did I do wrong the last time? Or if you have a kicker who's missed one right and then misses one left, suddenly those posts are looking extremely narrow. Because if you look at the trajectory of the two kicks that you've missed left and right, that is a very, very scary thing, both for a golfer and a goal kicker. So that was a big a big area that I worked on, was being able to block off one side of the post. And then when I missed left, knowing exactly why and being able to correct it. In a, in a game situation straight away? Because, you know, yeah, brilliant. That's a very interesting um, analysis of of of, uh, of place kicking and, and uh, into your mindset around it. Um, as yeah, I said, I, around... I suppose, yeah, like the, the, <clears throat> it's a small thing, but like the guy bringing on the kicking tee for a long time for me was Richie Murphy and he, he was no different to a caddy. You know, he'd come on, we'd assess the wind and Richie knew my, my technique inside out. So if I missed the kick left, he... he it could be as simple as saying to me, you didn't have your toe pointed down or you didn't stay tall enough. And like having a cue like that in a high pressure game and being able to fix it in the moment was absolutely huge. As I say earlier on and from listening to your interviews you've done, I do think you have very strong emotional intelligence. Obviously, I'm not qualified in that, but you do seem to analyze and you're aware of, of how you're feeling and, and issues going wrong or how to fix it. Do you think that's kind of attributed to the number 10 position or is that something that you would have been, would have been instilled in you from a young age? Yeah, I think a, a large part of it came from my parents, you know, they're, they're just two, two really caring people and same with my granddad, you know, they're always looking to, to help people and, um, that's kind of being passed on to me is just something that that that's normal, you know. Um, for for me as an out half, I think having the understanding that certain players need, you know, a rocket up to behind um, at certain times, and and they have the personality that's suited to that. That you know that, for example, James Hume is someone who I can say before a game, I I don't think you're on it here. You need to wake up, and I know that he is you know, mentally f- strong enough to take that information on. At the time, he might think, shove it, Mads, you know, that's the last thing I need. But, you know, 10 seconds later, he's realized, maybe I'm actually not on. And he's, you know, he'd have the the self-awareness to go, you know what, I need to dial up here. And he would. Um, but then there's other players who could be having a poor warm-up and they need something opposite. They need the arm around the shoulder, they need a tire pump, they need to be told how good they are, you know, tell them to focus on the basics, tell them what you want them to do, tell them that, you know, every time they're in a ball carrying position, you want to hear from them, um, simple things. So I think the biggest, you know, 
part of like when people say emotional intelligence, it's the ability to build relationships with people, you know, so you can't just have a working relationship and expect to get the most out of players. You've got to be able to get to know them off the field. And if you can help them out off the field and they've got more respect for you that way, or you train hard with them off the field, that's how you build respect. And that comes back into emotional intelligence when you can actually know someone's personality and figure out what they respond well to at certain times. You're very interested in, and you have inter, um, investments in obviously in in, 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 in data ships and obviously the, the new company, no, feel free, feel free, CBE, CB, CB, isn't it? CB? Yeah. yeah. Um, with, with the data ships, what exactly is it? I know it's around GDPR, but can you just give me a, a brief insight into what it is? Yeah, so it originally started off back in uh, 2015, 2016 as a fantasy rugby product. Um, so one of my friends from school came to me with the idea. And at the time, it was just really the Irish Times products that was out there. And it was, you know, you could pick seven seven wingers and eight back row. And, and you know, it was really just done on tries and whether your team won or not. And he wanted to build out a more kind of stats-based game. So we built that out um, on a kind of sh- shoestring budget. And we had good success with it. You know, we'd over, over 100,000 people playing the game at one stage. And then we were approached by um, Sky Sports New Zealand to, to buy the game off us because they basically wanted more interaction on their their platform. So we were happy to to exit at that stage. And that kind of led us on to 2017, 2018. And the, the GDPR was coming in then. And um, another one of our, our, our friends from school, Ryan McElane, had been working in compliance, kind of more around banking compliance and whatnot. And he knew the GDPR was coming in and, and what a headache it was going to be for, for SMEs. So he said, look, why don't we go about building a kind of one-stop shop solution for, for SMEs. So it was all the basic stuff like privacy policies, cookies tools, cookies declaration, how to deal with, with data access requests. Um, and we built out the kind of one-stop shop solution and we sold that product for for three or four years with with, with good success. You know, we have a few hundred clients using it. Um, but ultimately, you know, we... We probably needed a bit more of a help and hand from the regulator because there hasn't been as many fines in in the area that we're working in. Some of the big kind of industries like Meta and you know BA and Marriott got fined, but um, not the smaller uh, businesses, which meant that there was less of a demand for for our product. But what did keep coming up um, was emails and you know what's compliant. Who is a who who can I who who can I compliantly email to? historical email lists from previous businesses in new businesses. Can I use them? There was purchased email lists that people were asking, can we use these lists? And then ultimately the main question we kept getting asked was, how can we gather more emails to market to more people? And um, what we found was on Shopify, um, they very much have a one size fits all approach because there's different data regulations throughout the world. And similarly with Clavio, they're both brilliant at what they do, whether it's building websites or email marketing, but they're not compliance experts. And that's where we set about um, building an app um, that sits at the checkout. And we basically increase the number of emails that are marketable from roughly 20% to maybe 75%. And then off the back of those additional emails that are gathered 
and um, the, the the clients we work with um, are now seeing you know additional revenue coming in from from marketing to those clients. Tell us about the the company you've you've set up with with your partner. What ex- I know you've you rebranded it recently. Can you just bring us through the the whole journey and the direction it's gone? Yeah, so it was probably 2016, 2017. I, you know, I'd moved to France and uh, top 14 is a pretty tough league and it, it was taking its toll on me. Um, physically, I, you know, I picked up a nasty enough groin injury, had a problem with my neck um, and, you know, the squad sizes over there are smaller. You're a foreign player over there on good money. You've got to scrub up and train and play and unfortunately, I had to rely on, you know, pain relief. I had to rely on anti-inflammatories and I was taking sleeping tablets, you know, a few nights a week to help me sleep, especially leading into games. And I knew that, you know, this wasn't really sustainable, both for like my good health and even just sleeping tablets, the quality of sleep that you're getting. It's not it's not really sustainable. Um, So at the time, CBD had become legalized for athletes and it was a bit of a minefield trying to figure out what um what products you could take legally as an athlete because there are some that would contain traces of thc that would potentially um make you fail a a drug test so i did a lot of research on that found a good brand took that and then off the back of it kind of realized look you know could we be the source of, of of information to be able to educate people more on cbd um and what we did was we we built out a a suite of products um, that includes CBD that is suited to the daytime to both energize and focus you, suited to the nighttime to help you relax um, and and rest. And then we've also um, we've we've um, oils that are infused with with vitamins like vitamin D, echinacea, and then we've multivitamin uh, gummies. So um, it, it's been a game changer for me, I must say. You know, to be able to to step away from those kind of harder medications in in anti-inflammatories and 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 uh, pain relief and to to use a, a, you know a natural solution um has been great and our our main motivation i suppose is is being able to help others um and that's why we we set it up and have you seen the <clears throat> say the benefit in you as quickly as you would have say taken um painkillers or, or or stuff like that um no it's it, it's not an instant um it's not like, right, I need a good night's sleep tonight. Better get the CBD out of the wash bag and, and take three squirts and I'm going to have a good sleep. The the, the real key with, with CBD is to take it consistently. So the way our product, um, our main product is is the Duo, which contains uh, one bottle of, of Rise and one bottle of Rest. And we recommend three sprays of the, of the uh, Rise in the morning and three sprays of the Rest in the evening. And I noticed a difference off the back of about probably two or three days. I felt like I was sleeping better. Uh, the information in my body off the back of probably sleeping better had come down. Um, and <clears throat> the other big thing that it, area that it's helped me and my, my wife, Anna, is is around anxiety. You know, I, I suffered from performance anxiety, you know, mainly worried that I was not going to get through a full training session or or a full training day, or, you know, am I going to be able to hold up in this match, carrying this injury into it? Um, Anna had obviously moved from, from, from Dublin to France, which was, you know, a big challenge for her. And CBD has helped both, has really helped reduce our, our anxiety on, on two different fronts. And the way, without getting too de- detailed, it's, it's, basically the the endo 
cannabinoid system within the body is is what the CBD interacts with. And the better balanced that is, the better your sleep, anxiety, mood, appetite, et cetera, will be. So that's kind of how the science behind how it works. And naturally, or but not naturally, but when people um, obviously hear of CB, CB, they might think of the that product in in weed. But uh, that thing is taken out, and it that that would make you get yeah, munchies. Exactly. Is, it? is that what they call it? Yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so THC would be the effectively the hallucinogenic in the cannabis plant that would make you high from you know smoking smoking cannabis um the cbd is one of 146 components in the in the in the cannabis sativa plant thc is one of them that is extract the thc element is extract is uh eliminated in the process of of making the cbd so for example like i take cbd before i play games i take it in the morning when i get up it doesn't it, it's not something that makes you feel drowsy um or um lethargic it's it's working in the ba- in the background is is the probably the best way i can describe it brilliant brilliant and you, you rebranded it recently how's it going um and what direction is it is it is it going to go down to to i heard you talking about it before i might get puppy uh, products for puppies or something like that yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah we've we've tried that so cbd it still has tight regulations around it so um, you know, we're we're based up in Belfast, so we're operating under the the, the UK law. Um, at the moment, the it's it's currently a novel food, which is basically a, a food that's that's you know under review. Um, we're hoping to get our novel food license in in, in the next couple of months. When we get that, hopefully the Irish um, I think it's FDA is it maybe that's the UK one anyway. They're they're both called the, the food safe FSI. I think it is. Um. Hopefully they approve, you know, that that it, that that the products are safe to be sold in store, and um, yeah, the, the 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 roadmap for us then will be to 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 sell in store and in pharmacies and health stores and and continue to grow out the kind of suite of products, um, whether it be you know bams for pre workout, post workout, um, capsules, chewables, um, yeah. So that's that's kind of where we want to go. We want to be like a a big wellness brand as such. Brilliant, brilliant. That's definitely important the way things are going now. And and just on that point, the wellness is that, you know, um, if it if it helps with anxiety and and uh, all the struggles with life nowadays, I think it's a win win. Um, and it's it's natural, you know, it's healthy. It's not a it's not like um a medicine you're taking and damaging your your digestive system and and internal organs. So I think it's a it's a win win that you're on. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. No, as you said, look, if you if you can if you can find a natural solution, you know, I, I'm I'm not someone who I'm, I'm certainly not in a position to be saying, look, replace the medication you're on with this. But it's um it's a product that that is definitely worth trying if you're a poor sleeper, if you suffer from anxiety, if you've got inflammation in your body. Um, you know, it's definitely something that 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 is worth giving a shot. It's been a, it's been an absolute game changer for me personally. And um, you know, a lot of our clients are returning, so must be doing something good. Brilliant, brilliant. So before we we just we just come today and now a few questions I'd like to, to ask my guests. Um, do you have a morning routine? Um, yeah, I've we're looking now with a a black lab in uh Benji. So 
usually get up and, and walk him. I'm, I'm not the best morning person, but I find when I see his excitement to go for a walk, it makes me kind of think to myself, maybe I should be a bit more excited about this walk myself. So straight away that, that, that in, in, improves my mood. And then off the back of bringing him for a stroll around the park and coming back, I'm kind of, I'm ready for the day and I'm ready to get into the club and get into the change room and, and, and have, um, have the crack with the lads and, and and get stuck in. But um, yeah, outside of that, like a lot of the stuff is laid on for us in, the, in, in Ulster, you know, breakfast is a big part of, of what we do both socially and, and from a meeting perspective. Um, but no, routine wise, I like getting up early and, and trying to get ahead of the day. Um, but I wouldn't be overly regimented in, in, in what I'm doing. Would you practice, well, you, you obviously practice visualisation, but what, before I, sorry, normally ask, I guess that, but I think we've d- discussed it already. The other thing I'd like to ask is, you're big into positive affirmations. Do you fully believe in them? Yeah, like I I believe in both, like b- between visualisations and, and positive affirmations. Like visualisation, like with data ships recently, we did an event in Belfast and like I get really nervous and like people look at me and go oh this guy looks confident but like i get crazy nervous but i won't like i won't be trembling but you know i'd, I'd be aware like internally i'm going you know if, if i mess this up it's going to be catastrophic for me and everyone's going to find out about it and it's going to be hilarious you know that kind like those kind of dark thoughts are going through my head so like i'll use visualization i'm doing a presentation in front of you know 40 or 50 people you know i've played in front of eighty thousand people I sh- like why should I be nervous? I'm nervous because I care. I care about data ships. So the way I prepare for that is no different. I'm, you know, the, the night before I'm lying down and I'm visualizing the people in that room. I'm visualizing the faces. I'm visualizing the slides that I'm going to see. I'm, you know, I'm visualizing my body language, how I'm going to project my voice, the pauses I'm going to make. And, you know, it's almost like deja vu when it gets to go time and you're and you're doing the the presentation itself. It's like you've already done it, you know, and and it keeps your heart rate down. My breath is is a key part of of what I do when I feel that pressure really build up. You know, two deep two two deep breaths of real high quality has worked really well for me. I use it for my goal kicking, but I also use it in in business life if I was doing a presentation. Um. And then the the positive affirmations is one, you know, I work with a lot of the younger players in Ulster and, um, you know, some of them are riddled with with self-doubt and it's tough, you know, because we're challenged every day, both by players and, and coaches. And, you know, I say to them, look, it, it's it's OK to be really positive with yourself internally. You don't have to go around telling everyone how great you are, but. Tell yourself how great you are internally, even if it's just a simple pass or a simple tackle, or a simple rook, tell yourself, that was amazing. You're the man. And you you keep doing that over and over again. That will build up confidence in you. And, you know, I find with some of the younger lads, they're trying to do amazing stuff all the time, and they go looking for it. I'm like, don't go looking for it. Just keep stacking up the basic stuff well. Tell yourself how well you're doing that. And then the opportunity will present itself, you know, to go for a break or whatever it might be. Um, but it's it's about keeping them in that positive mindset, as we said earlier, not, you know, compounding errors, but also you could be 20 minutes into a game and not have done a whole lot, but internally you've told yourself you're having the game of your life. What are two daily non-negotiables? I'd be pretty passionate about sleep, like I'd try and get to, get to bed early, like that's 
that's one thing that I think it's a daily battle for everyone. Um, you know, there never seems to be enough errors in the day these days. But you know, if, if I can get to bed before eleven o'clock, I've 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 done well. Um, and then I think personal time with my wife Anna. You know, she she works incredibly hard on the feel free business. I'm in the club a lot and 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 managing the data ship stuff that you know that we find time for each other whether it's going for a walk to you know down to to the park with the dog to get a coffee and and having some quality time together um will be two things that uh, I I wouldn't be able to get through a day without. Brilliant, brilliant. Look on uh on that note, actually, just before you wrap it up, how do you feel Ireland will get on in the World Cup this year? I know it's the million dollar question, but ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. We've got to win it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. We'll, 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 we'll wrap it up on that note, uh, Ian. Look, we could have kept talking for a long time, um, but I think we, we covered a huge amount. Thanks very much for taking time out, coming on Inside View Podcast, and best luck with everything going forward. Brilliant. Thanks a million for having me on, Jamie. Talk to you soon. That is all from us on this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ian. We'd ask you to rate and review and tell your friends and family about the podcast and be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so already. It makes a huge difference. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're available on all social media platforms. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on it fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.